Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 75. Thanks for listening. Big 75, people. We made it. Woohoo! Which really just means after last week, episode 74, we recorded another one and called it episode 75. And, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm pretty sure next week's episode is going to be called episode 76. Sorry for the spoiler. Right at the top of the show, I want to give a shout-out to my neighbor across the street, who, even though it's Sunday morning, decided this would be a good time to mow his lawn. Who mows their lawn on Sunday morning? Everybody knows that Sunday morning is for reading the funnies, and drinking coffee, and recording video game podcasts. Everybody knows this. I'm pretty sure it's a city ordinance or something. But, 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 I will give him this. He was still mowing when I was doing the pre-setup stuff for the show. You know, recording the audio, uh, the game, and and the the, uh, field report and stuff. And he has quit now that I've restarted recording proper. Although, ominously, I still still see him out there, you know, through my binoculars, with, uh, with his wheelbarrow, so who knows what's coming next. So maybe we should just move right along and see what's going on in the larger world outside of Atari land. As if there is a larger world outside of Atari land. Um, Wonder Woman. The movie's still raking in, speaking of wheelbarrows, literally wheelbarrows of money are being hauled up to, uh, you know, the Marvel Studios. And, uh, or excuse me, sorry, not Marvel Studios, DC. Uh, you know, sorry to uh, mix the two up. You know, wheelbarrows of cash as this movie's raking in money, uh, money after money, in whatever form that takes around the world. Something like $600 million as of a, a couple of days ago. And that was, I think, before the weekend started. So they probably brought in a ton more cash this weekend. So good on you, Wonder Woman. I mentioned this last week. Uh, I'll mention it again. The uh, Sword Quest issue number one is out in it by now. Uh, I have not had a chance to read my copy as I record this, but I will be. I also heard that the original set of Sword Quest, you know, the mini-sized comics that were packed in with the uh, Sword Quest cartridges back in the day, I've heard that a... A collection of those is being put out in trade paperback later this year. Let me see if I can pull up the article real quick here. It's going to have a price point of $15.99. It will be available to ship in August 2017. Uh, Rated teen and above. I read these things. If you heard my Sword Quest episode, uh, you know that. And obviously, I'm sure a lot of you have read them too. A teen rating might be a little bit conservative, but alright. George Perez did the cover, of course. Uh, written by Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, and Hope Schaefer. Art by George Perez, Dick uh, Giordano, Frank Kuroko, Sirocco, which I'm probably mispronouncing, Ray Garst, Hiro Kimura. The 152-page soft cover, uh, you know, bound together uh, for the first time. I think Dynamite Comics, which is also Dynamite Entertainment, which is also doing the new Sword Quest comic, I think they're putting this one out, too. Uh, although this thing I'm looking at right now doesn't tell me that. So yeah, so that'd be fun uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to read those and prefer your comics in paper form. This is a good way to do it. Uh, what else is going on? Oh, oh, ladies and gentlemen, as I record this, it is, as I noted, Sunday morning, and I am barely, I'm a little more than 12 hours now out from watching part one of the season 10 finale of Doctor Who. Oh, the world is not enough in time, which is a really clunky title, but it was an awesome episode. I won't spoil anything for you, uh, other than to mention what you already know. Two masters, meaning 
Missy and the Master. And if you watch Doctor Who, you know what that means. If you don't watch Doctor Who, you're terribly confused and perhaps a little alarmed now. But there are two Masters in the episode, and the original oh, Mondasian Cybermen. Oh, man. I almost wet myself a little just thinking about it. They are the original version of the Cybermen, which in the decades after that, sorry, you know, Cybermen, you kind of became, you know, just sort of boring trash. But the original Cybermen were super creepy. And now for the first time in like 50 years, they brought back that design. And it was awesome. I won't say any more, any more than that about the episode. I don't want to spoil it for you if you are inclined to watch. But it was amazing. By the time you're hearing this episode right now, the finale of that two-parter, and actually the finale of the season, will have happened. And I will be probably all giddy and, you know, drooling all over the next episode of the podcast talking about it as well. And that will be it for Doctor Who until Christmas, uh, when they have their annual Christmas Day episode, which will also be the finale for Peter Capaldi as the Doctor, which is all very sad. They seem to like to do, they seem to like to kill off the Doctors on Christmas Day for some reason and introduce new ones. It's sort of morbid and weird, but I dig it. So I don't know what that says about me. But anyway, The World Is Not Enough in Time, Episode 11, Season 10, Doctor Who. Great stuff. If you're not a Doctor Who fan, go become a Doctor Who fan, and then write to me and tell me you know, that you are going to thank me and put me in your will, because you're so appreciative of the fact that I made you a Doctor Who fan. Trust me, you won't regret it. The last thing on my news list is an Atari movie update, and the update is that I have no update. As I record this, it's June 25th, which means we're within a little more than two weeks from the new Centipede comic, uh, which I'm excited about as well. I think the release date for that last I saw was supposed to be July 12th, so that would be cool. Lots of cool pop culture stuff in and around Atari land, and that makes me very happy. All right, well, that was fun, but let's uh, take off, you know, let's uh, put up the landing gear and hit the skies for this week's game, because this week's game is Sky Jinx from Activision 1982. We love us some Activision. I'm going to get me a t-shirt that says, We love us some Activision. If somebody's already made one of those, let me know. Because I would buy that thing in a minute. Price being reasonable and all that. Alright, so I'm looking at the Sky Jinx manual. Like a lot of the Activision manuals, right there on the front cover they give you a lovely picture. I would like to have this blown up and framed tastefully for my wall. A nice little scene of a P-41 zooming around a hot air balloon, which has the little lines around it. You know, the, the uh, illustration lines around it to show that the, the uh, balloon is vibrating. And I'm pretty sure the two people in it are about to hurl in little, you know, illustrated barf chunks. So uh, it's a lovely picture. But like a lot of these Activision manuals, right there on the front cover, they sort of trash talk you. And this one's no different. It says, pre-flight jitters, air sickness, Dumont got you edgy. I don't know what that means. Settle down. You'll do just fine, but please read this manual before takeoff. It'll help put your nerves in, on autopilot and give you some real pointers on piloting to victory and the coveted Thompson Trophy, which I'm pretty sure is a thing they made up. Actually, hold on. Breaking news here. I just typed in Thompson Trophy into my search bar on my iPad browser, and right away what pops up is the Thompson Trophy race was one of the national air races of the heyday of early airplane racing in the 1930s. Established in 1929, the last race was held in 1961. The race was 10 miles long. Wait, that reminds me of something. Camptown ladies sing the song, do-da-do-da. Camptown racetrack's five miles long. Okay, that actually has nothing to do with it. Anyway, 
The race, the Thompson Trophy race, was 10 miles long with 50-foot-high pylons marking the turns and emphasized low-altitude flying and maneuverability at high speed. Alright, so I was wrong. It is a thing. Sorry, Activision. The object of Skyjinx is to race your P-41 through the pylon course in the shortest possible time without hitting pylons, trees, or balloonists. And tells you, you know, idiot, go hook up your video game system first. We're using the left controller for this one. The button is sort of superfluous. Number five in the instructions on the setup tells you, specifically, set difficulty switch at B. And that tells you there are five games. Basically, the only difference between the games is the number of pylons. It ranges from 25 pylons in game one, the polo grounds, to 99 pylons, which is actually the Thompson Tourney. Uh, and that game features a new course each time you select the game. Like so, we're using the joystick, the left joystick. Move the joystick to the left, banks your plane to the left. Move your joystick to the right, banks your plane to the right. Forward or backwards during the race does not affect movement of the plane. Red button on joystick is your plane's throttle. Oh, okay. Uh, I take it back. It does have a purpose, although when I was playing a little bit this morning, which I admit was only the first time I'd ever played this game, the button didn't seem to be doing a whole lot, but maybe I wasn't pushing it enough or something. I don't know. I'll have to try it again. It claims, you know, press the red button to accelerate, pr uh, release the button uh, to slow your plane down. I thought just pushing the joystick forward was the throttle uh, to move the plane. I was wrong. Alright. So like I said, number five in the instructions was to explicitly said, Set left, dif left difficulty switch to B. Now, at step 9, it says only left difficulty switch is used. In the A position, trees are randomly placed directly in your flight path along the course. Left difficulty switch in the B position, trees are removed from the direct flight path. So why did you have to set it in B in step 5? That seems like wasted effort to me. Maybe you want it in you know, on setting A, which I actually did for the field report. I had it, I believe, on difficulty A. You must fly to the right of the red pylons and to the left of the blue pylons. You know what? I think I said that backwards in the field report. There is a three-second penalty each time you fly on the wrong side of a pylon. Your pylon count is shown above the timer on the screen and counts down each time you either successfully pass or crash into a pylon. So, at the end of the race, that the count remaining on the screen indicates the number of missed pylons for that race. Note to owners of Sears Telegames Video Arcade, difficulty uh, is called Skill, and A is Expert, B is Novice. Special features of Skyjinx by Activision. Your P-41. You'll quickly find that flying your P-41 racer is just like real flying. I know people, not many, but I know uh, of people who own and fly airplanes. So I'm pretty sure I am cool to just go fly their planes now. I'm going to suggest that when I see them this week. Because uh, apparently playing this game is just like flying a real plane. So I, I guess I am certified now to fly. So yeah, that's cool. Where should I go first? May I go to New York? Uh, see some shows. As you accelerate in the game to full throttle, notice how your racer's altitude increases and your plane's shadow falls back. Using your plane's shadow as a gauge will help you determine your airspeed. Okay, I didn't notice any of that in the game. Again... Only my first, actually, as coincidentally, as I glanced over at the TV screen, the game's still on, I see on the screen, I don't see a plane shadow, but I see shadows of the trees. Um, so I guess that's kind of what they're getting at. Also notice how your plane banks when turning, and just like real flying, your P-41 accelerates into turns, but it won't, but it won't respond immediately when turning. This delayed reaction gives a more realistic sense of flying. Again, I didn't notice that little subtlety in the game me thinks they may be overstating how realistic the flying is. You'll not only uh, have to properly bank around the pylons to make the best time, but you'll also have to deal with and dodge other obstacles as well. 
Trees and hot air balloons have been strategically placed along the course to really keep you on your toes and keep you from flying the fastest, most direct path. You'll need to master your racer and be able to make split-second decisions in order to do well in sky jinks. I mean, you actually have to practice and work at it to do well? That is such a novel concept. Oh, the 80s. How quaint. Getting the feel of sky jinks by Activision. In high-stakes air racing, you'll need razor-sharp reflexes and a keen sense of anticipation. In order to sharpen your reflexes and really get to know your P-41 racer, you should take a couple of warm-up runs down the field. At first, don't even try to fly the pylon course. Just soar at slow speed in a fairly straight path to check out your instruments. Learn how your plane banks and accelerates. Then, when you're more comfortable with the controls, take a practice run through one of the pylon courses. Learn to anticipate the upcoming pylons and begin turning early before you reach the pylon marker. At this point, don't even worry about time. There will be plenty of races for time later. Who has that kind of patience? Not me, friends. Join the Activision Sky Stars. Here's yet another contest I missed out on as a kid. In this one, if you beat a time of 37.0 seconds on game one without missing any pylons, you can join our Activision Sky Stars. Just send us a picture of your television screen along with your name and address, and we'll enroll you in this honored club. As always, I have a standing dare to any of you to try and contact Activision and get them to send you, uh, get you to enroll them in this club now in 2017. If any of you successfully does that, let me know. Uh, and then here's what has become over the uh, time I've been doing the podcast one of my favorite features of these manuals, the personal letter from the designer. How to become a Sky Star. Tips from Bob Whitehead, designer of Sky Jinx. Bob Whitehead is a senior designer at Activision. He also designed boxing, skiing, stampede, episode 74 of the podcast, and chopper command, which coincidentally was uh, an episode just before that. The key to winning any race is speed. But in pylon air racing, you'll have to match your speed with flying skills. That means becoming a good judge of distance and how soon or late to begin your turns. Uh, as your skills really progress and you become a precision pilot, you should almost be able to fly full throttle through most of a course without slowing down for the pylons, trees, or balloons. Cut your turn sharply and try to get as close to the pylons as you can. The path to becoming a sky star takes a lot of patience and plenty of crashes. But remember, even when you do have a mishap and crash into something, quickly accelerate back into the race. You'll be surprised at how good your time can be even after a crash or two. And please stay down from the wild blue yonder long enough to drop me a note. I'd love to hear how your racing career is going. Good luck, good flying, and God bless. Bob Whitehead. Bob is always so nice in these letters. I wonder, you know, back in the day, how many letters he actually got uh, from dorky little kids like me. I never wrote one, but I'm guessing there were lots of kids like me who actually did take the time to write to Bob Whitehead. And I kind of wonder, you know, how many he got. And did he get any weird stuff? Like, yeah, I'm sure he got a lot of uh, letters saying, yeah, I got this score, I got that score, and lots of pictures, and maybe some drawings. But I'm guessing he got some weird stuff, too. So I would love to hear some of those stories. Somebody should put that stuff in a book, because I'm guessing there's lots of weird things out there. All right, and that is how you play Sky Jinx by Activision. Much like the Thompson Tourney, which we learned today is a real thing, or was, the P-41, also a real thing. The Seversky XP-41 was a fighter aircraft built in the United States in 1939. A single prototype was modified from the last production, Seversky P-35, by adding a new streamlined canopy, a Pratt & Whitney R-1830-19 engine with a two-speed supercharger and revised landing gear. With the exception of the phrase landing gear, I understood not a word of that sentence. The XP-41 first flew in March 1939. The aircraft was developed in parallel with the P-43 Lancer, and work was stopped when the uh, USAAC showed a preference for the latter. Wow, take that, P-41. 
But did the P-43 Lancer get its own Activision video game? I don't think so. The plane carried a crew of one. It was 27 feet long. It had a 36-foot wingspan. Uh, it was 12 feet 6 inches high. Empty. The plane weighed 5,390 pounds. Loaded. It weighed 6,000 pounds. Maximum takeoff weight was 7,200 pounds. And the maximum speed was 323 miles per hour. The cruising speed was 292. Carried uh, one machine gun and... Well, actually, two machine guns. Just one 50 caliber machine gun and one 30 caliber machine gun. I think that's what it's trying to say. I don't really know about guns. I know probably less about guns than I do about planes. I don't know much about planes. Okay, so after the break, Jenky Scooby-Doo, where's Shaggy? Wait, Velma is the focus of this episode today, right? Right? Anyone? I wore my Velma t-shirt and everything. And away in my beautiful balloon would you like to fly in my beautiful balloon is exactly what I would say if I was one of these wussy hot air balloon pilots floating all over my p41 race course but I'm not a wussy I'm a pilot so get out of my way hot air balloons also where's my airstick bag so Sky Jinx is a good-looking game. Uh, I'm playing game three, the 75 uh, pylon version. I think pylon is the word I'm looking for. Um, difficulty setting A, where supposedly trees randomly pop up in front of you. Doesn't seem all that random to me at this point, but all right. Flying to the left of the red pylons, to the right of the blue pylons which seems like a subtly uh, political statement, but all right. Um, here's some, some of those hot air balloons. There's a lot of hot air balloons. Who designed this course? Who, who was in charge of planning, you know, time trials, P-41 time trials for the same day as the big hot air balloon um, flotilla, gondola, air race, odyssey, whatever you call it, a big grouping of hot air balloons. Really, to schedule those things on the same day seems like very poor planning to me. Um, this game reminds me a lot of skiing for the Atari, uh, except instead of going down, oops, high tree, going downhill, you're going uphill. Hi, blue pylon. Uh, so yeah, so it feels very similar to skiing to me. Uh, but like I said, it looks good. Um, everything on the screen looks like what it's supposed to look like. Um, it's a tad bit repetitive. Um, you don't really use the button to drop any bombs on any hot air balloons or anything. Uh, you just kind of move the joystick left and right. And the obstacles, frankly, are not all that difficult. Oops, flew to the right of the pylon that time. That's the big thing, I guess, remembering which side to fly on. Up, up and away. kind of intentionally flew to the wrong side of that one, because that's how I roll. Whee. All 
right, that's the end of the course. Coming in for a landing. Hardly barfed at all. Back to you in the studio. Okay, so here's the thing about Sky Jinx. I like this game. It gets a little repetitive. I mentioned that in the field report. It reminds me a little bit of backwards skiing, where you're, you know, in skiing you're going downhill, top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. This one you're going uphill, in a sense, you know, bottom of the screen to the top. But yeah, it feels a little repetitive to me. I wasn't even on the A setting. It, the trees didn't feel all that random to me. Maybe, you know, if you play game five enough times where the, the course changes each time, maybe that presents a little more of a challenge. Uh, so yeah, even though I like the look of the game, I like playing the game, I, it feels like a game you get tired of pretty quick. Um, but I may be wrong. If any of you has a different opinion about that, let me know. So we've got a game about, you know, classic fighter airplanes and hot air balloons and very aeronautical stuff going on. So... When I think of flying high over the trees and the landscape at you know, hundreds of miles per hour, it, it becomes clear to me what probably is going on in this story within the game. And so, ladies and gentlemen, do any of you like the History Channel? Do any of you tolerate the History Channel? Think of this as sort of an audio History Channel segment, because not only do we have a story, we have a true story. Note the audio asterisk. On true story. The footnote is, this may not actually be a true story. Propeller Pete was a legend in aviation. Not because he was a great pilot, but rather because even though he loved planes, especially the P-41, he got big-time airsick every time he went up in one. And just before he spewed, his arms would spin like propellers, and so the nickname Propeller Pete was born. Most folks think Gilmore Skjeldahl invented the airsick bag in 1949. Nope. It was Propeller Pete back in 1939 at the great XP-41 race time trials for the Thompson Tourney. Of course, the bumpy road to containing the Technicolor yawn wasn't easy to navigate. And that's not just because of the confusion generated by the phrase Technicolor yawn, given that Technicolor was still pretty new. Technicolor, friends, is a series of color motion picture processes, the first version dating from 1916 and followed by improved versions over several decades. It was the second major color process after Britain's Kinemacolor, and the most widely used color process in Hollywood from 1922 to 1952. Technicolor became known and celebrated for its highly saturated color and was initially most commonly used in filming musicals, such as The Wizard of Oz, 1939, and Down Argentine Way, 1940. Costume pictures such as The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938, and Dawn with the Wind, 1939, and animated films such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937 and Fantasia, 1940. As the technology matured, it was also used for less spectacular dramas and comedies, occasionally even a film noir, such as Leave Her to Heaven, 1945, or Niagara, 1953, was filmed in Technicolor. It is also the trademark for a series of colored motion picture processes pioneered by Technicolor Motion Picture Corporation, a subsidiary of Technicolor, Inc. Back to your regularly scheduled story. So let us hurl upon you the contents of our knowledge, the meat, the guts of our story, and shower you with the true story of the airsick bag. There were some false starts, some dry heaves, if you will, on the road to the perfect airsick bag. First, Propeller Pete tried using a good professional chef-grade cheesecloth on the theory that containing cheese curds is similar to containing pilot chunks. Turns out, it's not. He also tried fashioning those knitted lace doily things that women spread all over the arms of their chairs and whatnot in the 1930s. Decorative? Sure. Effective at containing high-altitude vomit? Not so much. 
Propeller Pete had a buddy named Airhead Ned. Ned lived most of his life head in the clouds, and he was a good pilot when he wasn't heaving last night's eggplant parmesan all over the cockpit. This time trial today was crucial to getting into the bid race. He had to do well. He could not be preoccupied with where his barf was going to go. So Pete gave him a good luck gift. Space is at a premium in the cockpit of an XP-41, and when the urge to hurl hits, it won't wait for you to find an old kit bag to pack up your puke, to pack up your troubles or your puke. But Propeller Pete hit upon a fantastic, dare he say genius, idea. And he did. He was a bit of an egomaniac. He gave Ned a beautiful white silk aviator scarf. But this wasn't just any aviator scarf, friends. He, he sewed into one side of the scarf that little cellophane sleeve off a package of cigarettes. This was the 1930s when lots of people were foolish and smoked. Kids don't smoke. Today's episode brought to you by the Kids Don't Smoke Coalition. Ned soared into the time trial that day, banking left and right in style to avoid hot air balloons, in, also in style, while securing the knowledge that while he is focused on the plane's yoke, his yak will be discreetly secreted away. So how did it work? Terribly. It didn't work at all, of course. It was an awful idea. No way that tiny little cellophane packet was sewed into a floppy scarf was going to do anything. Ned was a voluminous barfer. Also, holding a scarf over your face is poor aviation safety. Plus, laundry detergent science in the 1930s wasn't up to the challenge of projectile pea soup spatter. So, after helping clean up the wreckage of four planes that crashed, no pilots injured, just soiled, Propeller Pete destroyed his plastic sick bag, lest his abomination be unleashed in an un on an unsuspecting, queasy world again. Pete would never speak of air sickness again. And the glory of being the first to invent the plastic puke bag would go to Skajel doll. Meanwhile, Pete shifted his focus to inventing removable wall paint. Big sheets of paint you stick up on the wall, maybe with different designs and stuff? Why hadn't anyone thought of this before? <laughs> Stand by for actual air sick bag invention facts. Yes, there is a place on the internet where people have devoted time and data to compiling air sick bag facts. And we have some. A sickness bag, also known as a sick sack, air sack, air sick bag, air sickness bag, emesis bag, sick bag, barf bag, vomit bag, or motion sickness bag, please, you know, email me or hit me up on Twitter with your alternate suggestions for what you would call an air sick bag, is a small bag commonly provided to passengers on board airplanes and boats to collect and contain vomit in the event of motion sickness. Hovercraft ferry operators and even train companies have also been known to furnish bags, uh, mostly because they're not stupid and they don't want to clean up barf. The plastic-lined air sickness bag was created by inventor Gilmore Skjeldahl for Northwest Orient Airlines in 1949. Skjeldahl, which I'm sure is a name that I'm butchering horribly, uh, so apologies to the Skjeldahl family. Uh, he was born uh, on June 1st, 1912. Hey, it was just his... 105th birthday, not that long ago. Died uh, March 10th, 2002. Wow. He was an American businessman and inventor in plastics, adhesives, and circuitry. He was awarded 16 U.S. patents and may be best known for inventing the plastic-lined air sickness bag. Previously, uh, bags have been made from waxed paper or card. I'm not sure what that means. Like a, a cardboard box kind of thing, maybe? I don't know. Modern bags are still mainly made from plastic-lined paper because, frankly, everything... Uh, modern is made from plastic, but a significant proportion are now made completely from plastic. Uh, you know, see my previous comment. Okay, now here's where it gets weird. Among collectors of aeronautical memorabilia, there's a subculture of sickness bag aficionados. 
The Guinness Book of Records recognizes Dutchman Nick Vermillion as the world record holder for the number of different bags, 6,016 as of January 29, 2010. I shudder to think how many he has now. Uh, it also worries me that he's allowed to, you know, roam freely in public. In 2004, Virgin Atlantic issued a limited edition set of half a million bags in collaboration with designer Oz Dean. Oz had conceived and run an online gallery of sick bags since 2000 under the project name Design for Chunks. Here's yet another example of how the internet has way too much time on its hands. This gallery challenged designers to illustrate the usually dull medium of the sick bag, as opposed to t-shirts or splash pages, which were standard challenges at the time. In case you, you know, you were thinking, finally, I have a chance to display for the world my great design for an air sick bag that I've never been able to show anyone. Well, too bad for you, because Dean shut down the uh, contest in 2003. But, well, hold on, friends. In 2004, Design for Chunks was uh, reborn, I guess, with the strap line, this time it's real. This was, uh, they worked in conjunction with Virgin Atlantic to design printed bags on the global fleet of planes for six months, but actually only lasted three because people kept walking through the aisles collecting all the, the bags, you know, to get a complete set. The whole set of 20 finalist designs as a framed piece can be found in the Virgin Atlantic Clubhouse at Heathrow, UK, or online in, at the archived web, website. Virgin Atlantic released another four bags promoting the Star Wars movie, Star Wars Episode 8, Re- uh, sorry, Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, shortly after the Design for Chunks project. Steven Silberberg is also a collector of air sickness bags. His collection, the Air Sickness Bag Virtual Museum, holds 2,297 bags, which means basically he's a, uh, you know, he's a hack compared to, uh, uh, what's his face? Uh, Neek Vermillion, you know, who has three times that much. I wonder if they uh, uh, trash talk each other on the internet. I would like to read that Twitter stream. Some airlines have exhibited a sense of humor in designing air sickness bags for a short time. For example, uh, Hapig Lloyd Express, now to fly, had bags that stated, thank you for your criticism. The defunct ATA airlines used air sickness bags that had occupied on them. That's That's kind of funny. Delta Airlines has feel better printed on the bag. Nikki or Nikki Airlines uses sick bags with the legend Spibesacker on them, which translates to literally puke bag. Many exploitation horror films in the 1970s handed out vomit bags as a promotion gimmick for the more violent and shocking movies. There you go. There is more than you have ever wanted to know about vomit bags. Um, hopefully, you don't feel the need to use one at this point. I am really tempted to insert some audio of barfing right here. But I won't, because this show is way too classy. You're welcome. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Show notes and more can be found at ataribytes.libsyn.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. And please do. Uh, send me your thoughts about this game. Send me your thoughts about airsick bags. Send me uh, a good, if unusual, topping for pizza. I don't care. Just drop me an email. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. You can find Atari Bytes, well, pretty much everywhere, right? Uh, any of the major podcatchers will have it. Please tell your friends to go check it out. 
go to iTunes and leave a review. You know, let the sky high jinx fly. Um, but be nice. And tell your friends to do the same. Both to the show and to each other. That's your public service announcement for the day. And if you have time, you know, I know it's summertime right now as I'm uh, recording and releasing this episode. But, you know, you make some time on your commute. Maybe when you go to the beach, you plug in your uh, headphones and check out my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your peanuts needs. Need your Snoopy fix? Want to hear Lucy be crabby? Uh, well, hear about Lucy being crabby. Uh, Want to talk about cute little Woodstock? We do all of that and more on It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. It's a good nostalgia check for you. Next time on Atari Bytes. In honor of the new Spider-Man Homecoming movie coming out, hitting theaters, I believe, July 7th? I may be wrong about that, but it's coming out pretty soon. But in honor of that, we're going to play Spider-Man hyphenated for the Atari. Does Spider-Man, the character name, still have a hyphen in it? I know back in the day, uh, some of the comics, maybe all the comics, hyphenated his name. And this Atari game hyphenates his name. But I'm not sure when you see Spider-Man in common parlance, these days that he has a hyphen and if not why not and is there a consistent rule for that so many questions that we will try to answer on the next episode except if we forget them so do check that out thank you so until next time go play some old games they've missed you Thank you.